Some people have problems. Some people have problems, us. Him. You're okay. I like you. You're okay too. <laughs> Hurley. Oh, just. Said. I didn't know how to do all that. I was a military communications officer. Oh, yeah? You ever see battle? I fought in the Gulf War. No way. I got a buddy who fought over there. He was in the 104th Airborne. What are you, Air Force? Army? The Republican Guard. Thursday, 9-11-2008. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we will be with you from now until noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. <laughs> Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be and welcome to the show today, where I'm sure at this hour there are many commemorations and remembrances going on around the continent with respect to what happened seven years ago today. And we all remember the events in New York City and in Washington, and the 9-11 events. And I have to tell you, it's distressed me a little watching exactly what people are focusing on in recounting this tragedy, and I think sometimes it makes too much of a personal issue of it, and I thought maybe we want to remember what the whole issue is about. And with that in mind, I am very honored and pleased to be joined in the studio today by someone I've admired for a long time. I've told you about him before. I've read his columns on this very station many times in the past, and I am joined today by Toronto Sun columnist and from the UWO political department who teaches here at Western as well, none other than... Salim Mansour. How are you, Mr. Mansour? Thank you, Robert. I hope I can call you Robert. You Bob. absolutely can. You can call me Bob. You can Bob. call me anything you like. <laughs> you might even want to call me something else, but it's <laughs> <the> show. <laughs> well, thank you, Bob. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I, you know, I've been reading your columns, and, and uh, we're going to get into a lot of other areas today. In fact, some of the areas that we will be talking about is we're not just going to talk about 9-11, though we'll surely start with that, but we're going to talk about that, about the whole uh, situation with Islam, with um, American attitudes, Canadian attitudes, uh, the upcoming elections in, in each country. We're even going to talk about Russia later on in the war and what's going on over in Georgia with Putin. And maybe, if we have some time at the end of the show, we'll talk about the rest of the world and just comment on some of the other countries that are facing global problems. Now, I've been, uh, Salim, I've been reading a lot of your, your articles. You seem to be going almost against the, the, the mainstream out there in terms of uh, your general attitudes on the war and everything. With regards to 9-11 and the subsequent wars in Afghanistan and, and Iraq, what would you say is the the most fundamental point that Westerners do not seem to be able to grasp, you know, about what the war is about. You know what I'm, what I'm asking? Well, about the, sh the short answer would be the fundamental thing, the Westerners, Canadians, uh, a lot of Americans, and of course the vast majority of Europeans uh, do not grasp, is that there is a war on. 
and that there's a war on that has been going on for quite some time. And 9-11 was a moment when that war came right home uh, in North America, uh, and the North American heartland, United States heartland, was attacked by people who had declared war upon the West. So you're uh, suggesting the war didn't start on that day? No, the war didn't start on 9-11, uh, and, and, and that's the problem. I mean, both post-9-11 and pre-9-11, and the question that you ask me, uh, what is the fundamental thing about this uh, situation? Uh, and, and as I say, the fundamental thing about the situation is that the West uh, has not recognized that there is a war going on, and a war that was declared on the West on freedom-loving people of the West and everywhere else, both non-Muslims and Muslims. And, and that's an important point. The war is also against Muslims. The war is against Islam. Uh, and this is a war that is going on, uh, no. has, has been waging for, at least in our lifetime, we can say three decades or more, but this is a pretty long war. And during the Cold War years, it was sort of obscured. And we then took a holiday, the West took a holiday, when the Cold War came to an end. The Berlin Wall collapsed, then the Soviet Union disintegrated, and everybody thought, as if you recall, that famous essay by Francis Fukuyama, the end of history. Mm -hmm. History had ended, now we could just move forward, and, the, and, 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 and we can tinker with history, but the great issues, the grand issues of the time, and the grandest issue of all time is ultimately freedom and evil, good and evil. Mm -hmm. And so uh, uh, we had basically closed the book on that. N now, it's interesting because that's a perspective <coughs> that you and I share very strongly, I think, from everything you've read. I know you don't know of me as well in terms of a lot of right. things I've said here, but certainly uh, you're a person that seems to understand freedom at a very deep level. Now, you are also a Muslim. Right. Uh, you were born in India. Right. Um, you're of a different culture, a different background, different religion. You and I, this is the first time we've met in person. Right. We've only talked once before. We talked at length, and we had some great <laughs> debates. About, by the way, folks, I've got to tell you, within an hour, we talked about everything <laughs> under the sun, uh, from religion right on down to what we're discussing today. And yet, despite our differences, there's a huge commonality there. Right. And I asked you just briefly when we talked about it before, and we didn't get into it, how does that happen? How is it that... Um, peoples of perhaps differing backgrounds like that can still have that common bond. And what is different about the cultures that don't share that willingness to want to get along? Uh, if you, you know the general question I'm getting at. Well, the fundamental commonality that is so simple and is so readily forgotten is our common humanity. <laughs> I tell my students, I remind them uh, uh, almost every year, that look, uh, every aspect in my outer body is different from every aspect on your outer body, that there is six <laughs> billion plus human being on, on walking the face of this earth at this moment, and each of us have a unique thumbprint or fingerprint, and it will not match somebody else's. But guess what? My heart can beat inside your heart. <laughs> so mm -hmm. we are both simultaneously, we share a common humanity, and we have differences, which is the outer differences in culture, the way we look, what we eat, how we fashion ourselves. And, and when people start giving too much emphasis to the externality that is a difference and obscuring the commonality, then we lose the sense of freedom. Now, when you say that, um, that it's just an externality, is there not more there than it? Like I w to me, I look at this war, the war and the differences between the nations as less a physical war of 
you know, battalions and weapons than a war of ideas at the heart of it. And clearly there has to be some different ideas in play in yes, some countries as others. Yes, absolutely. Uh, d d different ideas are at play. That is, different ideas expressed in different cultural situation, different historical situation, and so on. But at the core, I think, and this is what I would suggest, uh, it is the fight of good and evil. It is a fight of people who believe in freedom Why and people who do not believe in freedom. You know, that's where I think most North Americans fall down on understanding the issue. And I think a lot of them uh, don't understand the nature of evil, and they can't understand the idea that anyone would, quote, choose, end quote, evil, and to do evil. Because isn't it a given, in a way, that anyone who we might regard as evil, <laughs> okay, would not regard himself as evil? And isn't the conflict there? Like, I mean, if you've got this fundamental conflict where what we represent is evil to the other side and what they represent to us is evil, by evil meaning to our well-being, not just a religious concept. Um, w w how do you resolve that? Well, I mean, yes, I mean, this this becomes a circular argument, you know, the other is always the, the bad guy and we are the good guy, um, but it would be, I mean, again, in, in very simple s sense, you know, uh, uh, you, you see something that looks like a duck, walks like a duck, quacks like a mm -hmm. duck, is a duck. It is that you see evil by what evil does, not by what is proclaimed in some ideational sense. Uh, what well, evil we're, we're does is seek to control the other, to dominate the other, to coerce the other, to deny the other his or her individuality. So that is, it is a, it is a war between good and evil, or it's a war, a battle, and of course, at the heart of the battle is ideas. It's a battle between freedom and unfreedom. It is a battle between open societies and closed societies. It is between totalitarian system and democracies. That's what it is about. I agree with you wholeheartedly, especially when you say uh, evil is about trying to control others to some degree. And yet, so many in the West, particularly what we would call the left, I guess, the left wing, <laughs> most predominantly, but many on the right, don't see that evil as being evil. They look at it, well, they're, they're just fighting for their interests, or they see another culture that severely controls its own citizens, uh, perhaps in a brutal way, and they just write it off to, well, that's a culture, and they, they have a right to exist. Where, where did we ever get that concept, and or is it just a response to maybe thinking, well, what can I do about it? You know, can't go to war with every country we disagree with. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, uh, uh, the, the issue that you're posing, uh, Bob, is at a at a fundamental level a philosophical issue, and then we get into the question of left, right, you mm. know, politics, and so on, so forth, policy differences. I think within a democracy, uh, to the extent that there is a left-right dichotomy, I suppose one could say that the left looks at the collective good of people mm -hmm. within within a democratic system and they would like to marshal the forces of the collective good of the people through the institutions of democracy, the government and all these various institutions. Which is nice in theory but never seems to work in practice. Well, it's I mean, so long we maintain our democratic system, that is so long we maintain our open society, then there is a, there is a productive debate. The moment that open society is closed off, mm -hmm. then of course then it changes. Uh, the danger, the peril is that if the left believes that they are the only one who is right, that their only co their collective good and the w how they want to handle it is the only way to go about delivering whatever is defined as good society, then we are rapidly descending into a closed society. It seems to me that any um, philosophy that's based on the, quote, collective good has to be 
opposed to the individual good from the, from the outset, would it not? Well, I mean, look, I mean, uh, no individuals are ultimately, you know, uh, uh, totally himself or herself. You know, no man is an island unto himself. Right. Well, that's a different and, thing and, from and saying and that so other so people have a right to control that no, man. But precisely. that's what collectivism says. No, precisely. So yeah. we we should we should not mm -hmm. dogmatize either side. I mean, if you're going to have a philosophical discussion about it, as opposed to being in the husting, talking politics, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, so well, I'm not running for anything. So. Neither <laughs> am I. So so let's put yeah. that put put it put it on the record. That the, the, the question is, you know, uh, it is a finding the right balance is as an oldest issue, the finding the light balance. It's, just, it's in the Old Testament, it's in the New Testament, it's in the Quran, it's almost in all the universal religions of the world. It is in philosophy going back to Aristotle, Plato, Socrates, what is the right balance between the individual and the collective? I mean, this was the struggle that was going on. Any time that the balance tilt too much on one side or the other, we have a problem. If, if, if the balance destroys the individual, which is what Stalinism did, which is what Hitler did, you know, in the creation of the gulag, or the creation of the concentration camp, then we are dealing with the maximization of evil, you know. On the other side, if you totally destroy the notion that the individual is supreme, fanatically or dogmatically supreme, and doesn't take into account that there are, you know, the reality of family, group, etc., then we are heading into anarchy. So okay, is. I see what you're saying. I, I I don't see those things as being contradictory. I think yeah. individualism is perfectly compatible with family and, and responsibility. Uh, exactly, but that and, that, that and that's essential to individualism. Absolutely. absolutely. So, so it is not completely an anarchical concept of individual. The individual realizes himself or herself within the function of a society, which which constitute at the fundamental mm -hmm. nucleus level the family. Now you say the the. Uh, the main thing people, the West does not get, is that there's a war on. My, my first thing I'm thinking is, well, why don't we get it? Why, why, why don't we understand that? Is it is that the media not telling us? Or do we not understand? Um, you know, when I talked to John Thompson at the McKenzie Institute, who could tell you all the insides and outs of every terrorist group and what their plans are, and it just seems that none of this information gets into the main media. Um, is that where the problem lies, do you think, or is... Well, I mean, there's a multiplicity of problems. The media tells a story. The media constructs a narrative. You and I are in the media here. We are talking this morning, you mm -hmm. know, and you have, you are on the driver's seat. You have talk, picked up a topic that is not readily discussed in, in, in our mainstream media in the sense of broader sense. So that's one part of the narrative, and there may be others. But I think in, 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 in a very larger and more important sense about the West, again, as a collective notion, as, as a notion of the Western civilization, democracy and freedom, and what the West geographically constitute, Europe or, or Western Europe and North America, Australia, New Zealand. Uh, the, the West had fought three humongous battles uh, or wars in the last century. Mm. Uh, the First World War, the Second World War, and then the Cold War. And these were clearly understood as identifiable enemies that came about, you know. And the war was a supreme exertion at the level of ideas, at the level of technology, at the level of the military, might, and economics, etc., etc. Cold War did not turn hot between the West and the Soviet Union in the main front, which is Europe, but there was enough of hot places around the earth, Vietnam, Afghanistan, mm. Africa. But once these wars ended, and in, in, in the last of the wars that ended with the Cold War that ended in the 19, uh, 1991, the West 
saw that they had won, West had won, and there was no formidable enemy, you know, no formidable idea. That's the whole notion of the end of history. Those who did not agree with that argument, for instance, Samuel Huntington, Clash of Civilization, uh, it was a nice idea that Samuel Huntington had put forth, but nobody readily bought into it that there would be a clash of civilization. And nobody still today buys it that there is a clash of civilization going on. Because the West, it sees itself, and it is genuinely so powerful economically, sure. militarily, um, that it has almost a disdaining effect that there would be somebody out there declaring a war on the West. Uh, and the reality is that there was somebody out there who declared war on the West. And the war that they declared on the West, that is West as it represents itself as the beacon of freedom and democracy and civilizational idea, and the people who declared war against them, the Islamists, they come from the third world, the most underdeveloped part mm -hmm. of the third world, you know. Um, and nobody took them seriously. Nobody even today takes them seriously. And so there's an incremental forces of opposition to the West that is growing. It's like a small wound that becomes cancerous and is growing and is spreading. But the body, the man or the woman, or the people think, you know, we are healthy enough and we can stave off this problem, mm -hmm. if I use that metaphor. So we still haven't yet completely agreed. There are people who have understood that. Uh, uh, President George Bush understood that. Uh, Maggie Thatcher, the former Prime Minister of England, understood that. There are a lot of people who are writing, uh, have understood that. People within the Muslim world understand that. I have been trying to articulate that position over the last seven, eight years. But I think at the main center, that understanding has not come about. That's very interesting. You, let's end on that note before we take this quick break, and we're going to come back after this break. And I want you to listen to this, because there's a couple of comedy clips that are kind of funny any way you look at them, but I think they say something very serious about, first of all, American and Canadian attitudes towards the war. And we come back after this break for a smile. We'll talk about the record of George Bush and differences in Canadian and American attitudes towards the war. We'll be right back after this. We don't... Americans have no idea what goes on. I was talking to this Arab guy the other day, and he said, why do the Americans always support the Israelis? Why do the Americans always support the Israelis? He said, it's probably because in America the Jews have all the money and they control the media, which is ridiculous and paranoid and really only part of it. <laughs> Americans, Americans have no idea what goes on in the, in the Middle East. The average American has no idea what's going on between the Israelis and the Palestinians. So basically, Americans support the Israelis for one reason, because the Israelis never do this. And the average American's like, I don't know what's going on over there, but I don't like that. I'm going with the team that ain't doing that. That I don't like. I'd like to see our government spend less money on. I'd like to see them spend less money on things like military. Don't you agree with me? Mil we don't need a military. Military spending is a waste of money. What do we need an army for? What do we need tanks and weapons for? We live next to the Americans. That's like buying a snowblower when both your neighbors have them, okay? <laughs> you know, we don't need to spend money on tanks. Next time we need tanks, Kretchen can call up Bill Clinton. Uh, excuse me, Mr. President, I was wondering if we could borrow a tank for a couple of days because the Indians took over another golf course, huh? Uh, uh, we promised to put gas in it, but uh, don't put no bombs because we don't want to have an inquiry in case they go off and kill someone, okay? 
Canadian military is nothing more than welfare with uniforms, okay? Because when you think about it, who are they protecting us from? Who's going to invade us? Sweden? I don't think so. I noticed you laughing through that, that clip there, Salim. Welcome back. You're listening to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we'll be with you from now till noon. 519-661-3600, the number to call if you want to join in on the conversation. What do you think about some of those comments? Uh, first of all, the first comedian, Greg Giraldo, uh, certainly uh, talked about Americans don't know what the war is about, really, and had this gut reaction to it, basically, not that much of an intellectual one. And on the Canadian side, you get this attitude, and I hear it a lot from Canadians. We don't need an army. It's basically what that guy said. Yeah, what, what's your first gut reaction to those <laughs> comments in a serious uh, <laughs> Well, sense? I mean, uh, it, it, it's funny. It's laughable. Yes. I mean, you know, one, one likes the humor. We, and, and, and that's one of the, one of the central facts of freedom, to be able to laugh and to laugh at, you know, people who, who take things oh, too agree. seriously. So if, if you lose that, we lose much. Um, but yes, I mean, uh, uh, it, it is true that, that the uh, vast majority of the Americans do not understand and haven't understood, despite seven years, and we're talking on the seventh anniversary of 9-11, of what the issues are, or why, I mean, the, the question that they woke up with after 9-11 and, and, and during that period was, why do they hate us? You know, mm-hmm. and and there is no satisfactory answer being provided. Why do they hate it? It just flies over the head. It seems that the Americans have not gone around and done anything that they deserve such hate. Uh, from the you're asking me from the from the perception of of the common people. On the other hand, uh, within the academia, within the media, there is a sense and that has the narrative that has that has been pushed and 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 written about extensively and discussed is that you know the West is after all the colonial imperial society that had ruled the world. Uh, and though we may be now in the post-colonial, post-imperial period, but we still are the hegemon. The West is the hegemon. The West has tried to run the affairs of the people in Africa and Latin America and, and Asia elsewhere. Some people might say uh, we're trying to bring civilization to those countries. Okay, so that's, that's a question know, of perspective. Would, yeah. Pre- precisely, mm. but, but, the, but, the, but the, lo- the lo- long narrative has been that, you know, uh, we, we have tried to rule the world, we have tried to shape the lives of the other, and so the others are now pushing back, and this is the pushback, uh, the blowback that is happening, and so uh, uh, one of the aspects of the Western civilization, at least in the modern time, uh, a liberal West, is there is a lot of guilt feeling. There's a lot of guilt feeling of what, what has happened. In, in Europe, there's a lot of guilt feeling, for instance. There's a guilt feeling uh, among the Germans that, you know, uh, the military and the militarization of the society led to uh, two wars which, which were instigated by Germany. And, and, and that brought ruination to Europe. And, and, and consequently, you know, that's the part that the Europeans know immediately and and they don't want to go on that path. That's interesting you say that. They look at it as the militarization, which I would see as not the cause, but the consequence of the ideas that led to that militarization. Uh, Fair enough, but I mean, this is just a genuine debate. And and there's a lot of noise around there and and, and people have to sit back and take time. We know ourselves better than we know the other. The other is always mysterious. The other is always unknown. And so, when it comes to the Middle East, when it comes to Islam, the West has, particularly the United States, does not have too much experience of either uh, except the experience that is borrowed from the European experience. The European experience is the experience of empires. Britain ruled huge chunks of the Muslim world 
for over a hundred years. Mm-hmm. Uh, so did France, so did Holland, etc. And 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 then they departed at the end of the Second World War. Uh, and the world has gone in a different direction. And so we we do not in the West have a much deep understanding of what is going on. And to talk about those uh, uh, other cultures of which in, at the heart of the, the problem 9-11 is the Arab Muslim culture, there is a great deal of reticence amongst us, that is the West, because if we talk about the problems of those cultures, the question is, are we passing some sort of judgment, moral, ethical, political about those those cultures? And well, I would say the, the answer is yes, and I think it's a reluctance to do that that's caused the state of the world today. I agree with you, yeah. but 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 you're asking me right. why, and so yes, now, I'm, now, I'm pointing out to you that sure. that's the problem. Now you're you're a, you're a, you've been a, a defender generally of George Bush in terms yeah. of his approach to the war, <laughs> and you said you were telling me some things about him that were a little surprising to me in the factual sense. You talked about his constitutional authority that he had to run this war, which was unlike the f- previous wars. And you want to get into that a little bit? Or, or uh, you know, what is it? Why, why do you support George Bush while everybody else, you know, he's apparently the least popular well, president? I mean, again, it's, 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 a, it's a large subject, but I, I, well, I sure, wouldn't be supporting... We, we I, all I, seven I, yeah, right, <laughs> fair enough. I, I wouldn't be supporting George Bush. I wouldn't be supporting no American president if there was no 9-11. And then subsequently all the decisions that have happened, I mean, who was George Bush and what George Bush was all about, was not, comment, not, yeah. not in my horizon, sure. like in, not in the horizon of many people, you know. Uh, yeah, we, 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 we follow the American election very closely. We see what's happening, but, you know, in the 2000 election was an election that was content, uh, contested and disputed you know, it went all the way to the Supreme Court, and the judgment came down. George Bush won the won the n- election through the Electoral College vote as opposed to the popular vote. And what has happened since then was that the mainstream media, which is basically liberal, left, and pro-democratic de- party, took a disdain to George Bush and has been take, and has taken a disdain to George Bush. And that disdain became compounded after 9/11, despite the fact that for a little while there was a sense of tremendous unity in the United States. But once that started dissipating. And, and and the reaction followed, that is, the United States took action, went to war. It went to war soon after 9-11 in October uh, in Afghanistan, mm-hmm. and that war was quickly brought to an end as, as the regime collapsed, and, and things went into the mopping up operation, and then the target moved to, I mean, the issue moved to Iraq. Uh, the mainstream media started, you know, uh, uh, raising all sorts of uh, questions, not only about the war, but about George Bush and Michael Moore and and all the comedians that you've played and brought forward this anecdotal and public understanding of George Bush that this man is some sort of a, you know, less than uh, 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 intelligent and and that he does not understand, uh, he's a buffoon, and that he lied America into war. But when you start examining George Bush, when you Mm -hmm. examine the record of his administration, all of these arguments are flim-flam arguments. There's no substance to it. For instance, the the uh, uh, war uh, uh, against uh, uh, Iraq, that is the war for regime change in Iraq, was a war that was fully authorized by the Congress in a resolution, the authorization of war resolution that was intensely debated in the Congress, both houses of the Congress, the, the, the uh, uh, House and the Senate, 
uh, and then the vote came down and it was not a simple majority vote or one vote or two vote making a difference you know it was a substantive vote in the Senate if I remember I'm now talking out sure. of memory if I remember correctly in the Senate the vote was something like 77 78 senators voting for the motion to authorize the president to take action in implementing all the United Nations Security Council resolutions uh, on Iraq uh, and and that is you know almost 80 percent of the senators voted that is democratic senators voted the famous argument that came around two years later when the Democrats tried to disown that vote that you know I voted for it before I voted against it that carry flip-flop okay so this was not a war that it was simply Bush's war it had it had a track record going back I mean the arguments going back all the way into the Clinton administration and all the way back to the first Gulf War of 1991 sure. so people don't pay attention people forget media has totally failed the mainstream media totally failed in keeping the people informed and that's why we have the problem this that we have you know, if I was a media person, I would think it my utmost responsibility to bring the public the facts, to bring them, uh, you know, what's, uh, what the situation is. Why is it, it's, it tells me that the media has a tremendous bias to begin with. Yes. I, and so can we trust the media at all? Is that where we should go for our information, or should we go elsewhere? Well, me... me Although me everything's a media in, in the big picture. I know yeah, we're sure, talking about the sure. media. I mean, I mean, exactly. I mean, yeah. we can't paint ev everything in the media. There are voices. There are others who are talking about it. Uh, the information I'm giving to you also comes from within the in media. I'm writing in the media, in the public media. Others are writing. But in general, overwhelmingly, you're correct. The media has a bias towards liberal left has an anti-Bush uh, uh, feeling about it, particularly in Canada and, of course, in the United States. Uh, conservatives are looked down upon. Conservative values are, you know, ridiculed. And my answer would be, yes, people who want to be able to make judgment on their own instead of being forced into judgment either by the media or by anybody else should exercise their freedom to explore and do the research, to be skeptical and find out for themselves. Yeah. But of course, the subjects are so large and so confusing, you have to lean on somebody. You lean on professors, your teachers, you know, the media people. Absolutely, yeah. And that's what happens. Now, now, just quickly, does Canada need a military? Oh, absolutely. I mean, aren't we a member of NATO? Well, yes. You Didn't know, we fight in the two world wars? Didn't we contribute our, uh, uh, whatever was our resources during the Cold War? I, I would say yes, but again, you hear like the comedian said, you know, Canada is... Well, I mean, the comedian uh, will say... People always make fun, yeah. fun of the Canadian Army. I was just listening this morning on one of the talk shows about how few people we actually have over there. Like, apparently, it wouldn't fill the old gardens in, in London South, and yet they're supposed to be controlling this whole section of a country, you know? Right, and, uh, right but we... we, we I mean, it is it is sad that we have such a small armed force, given given the size and the importance of our country. We are, after all, one of the G7 countries, you know, so that we are one of the seven countries in the Western world that is extremely important. Uh, we have pl played, you know, a, a role in world affairs far higher and greater than our weight. Um, you know, we have the, the third or the fourth largest uh, air force and navy in the, in, in the Second World After War, Second World War and, yeah. and, and we com contribute immensely. We contributed during the Korean War. We've contributed in peacekeeping. But, but the more fundamental question is, those people who argue that Canada does not need an armed forces, then they must also answer, how does Canada protect its freedom? 
Oh, oh, he did. He said the United States will do okay, it. Then, okay. Then, 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 they should not then be uh, running around. These people should not be running. Around. I'm not talking about the comedians. Oh, I'm sure. talking about the seri serious people should not be, uh, as, as a, a past prime minister did, Jean Chrétien did, and many people in the media do, running around uh, and, and and making a career out of direct or indirect anti-Americanism, oh, crying foul, foul. You know, uh, if we are going to surrender the protection of our interests to the United States then we have no reason then to grumble. I agree. You wrote an article uh, on uh, August 23rd about a slightly different subject. It's headed Russia's rapacity Rex Georgia and I thought we'd just take a break now because I've got a couple clips from the BBC about this very issue and when we come back after this break and these very important messages we'll just have a few comments about uh, what Salim Mansour, our guest today on Just Right, uh, might have to say about the whole situation over there and what we might want to think about Putin. We'll be back right after this break. Not since the eve of the Iraq war have the 27 countries of the European Union come together like this in emergency session. So how exactly would this divided body respond? Britain pushing a tough line. While we do want uh, good relations uh, with, uh, with Russia, I think it's pretty clear from what has happened over these last few weeks, it, it cannot be business unusual. Uh, uh, indeed, it will not be business as usual until things improve. Russia's invasion of Georgia and its subsequent move to recognize independence for South Ossetia and Abkhazia has been described as a watershed event. The EU response to declare its collective relationship with Russia at a crossroads. C'est un message d'unité très fort que l'Europe envoie. Europe is sending a very strong message of unity above and beyond the differing views expressed in the Union. The last extraordinary council was in 2003 concerning the war in Iraq. There Europe appeared inaudible and impotent because it was divided. Today Europe is united. But the Europeans have been speaking with different voices on the crisis. They share alarm about Russian defiance and its new assertiveness in the world. But they've been divided over exactly what to do about it. Many EU states have been worried about alienating a key trading partner, the European Union's biggest energy supplier. So there was some surprise at the stronger-than-expected stand that the EU summit took this week. The next round of talks on a planned partnership agreement with Russia have been put on hold. Punishment then for Russia and moves to support Georgia. The most important message of all of today is that EU will be much stronger uh, involved, much strongly involved in the Caucasus. Uh, there will be uh, quite significant EU uh, money and uh, quite significant EU assistance to the reconstruction and rebuilding of, um, of Georgia. But how much will all of this worry Russia? Vladimir Putin was shown as the summit got underway taking on a Tigris. Well, he fired a tranquilizer dart at it. These pictures meant, no doubt, to burnish his tough man image, as Russia warned the EU not to mess with it or impose sanctions. And Mr. Putin insisted Russia had acted within the law.
you can't shrug your shoulders when something like this happens. You've got to take up a phone position, and it's right to do so. But you've also got to recognize that this won't be solved through megaphone diplomacy. It won't be solved through sanctions. It won't be solved through talk of a Cold War. We've got to move at some point to the next stage, which is constructive engagement with the Russians, actually talking to them, and not just to the Russians, but to all of their neighbors, about how we deal with European security in the period ahead. A major concern now is energy. The EU depends on Russia for a third of its oil and 40% of its gas. There are fears Russia could turn off the tap to individual countries, which is why Britain and others have been pushing for a single energy market. The following session of the Assembly opens in an atmosphere of excitement. Correspondents know that this is a front-page story. Look, Schumann's just started to speak. Oh, Lord, off we go. It's worth remembering that the EU actually has its roots in a common energy policy. Back in the early 1950s, the European coal and steel community was set up to reduce the possibility of another war by putting a key strategic industry under collective control. But then European countries went their separate ways. So could a single energy market really work today? Actually, there's an incentive for each of the individual states to go off and do their own bilateral deal with Russia because they've got their own particular interests. Um, and so, although there's a theoretical benefit to collective action, the sort of immediate benefits to breaking ranks outweigh that. And so, I think certainly over the next few years, you're going to see a, a continuation of the status quo. European countries did find a collective voice in their condemnation of Russia. But how significant a stand will this prove to be? Welcome back. You're listening to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, 519-661-3600, the number to call if you'd like to call and join in on, on the conversation. We're talking about the world situation on this uh, you know, dramatic day 9-11. Uh, you had this article. Um, oh, and my guest today, of course, is Salim Mansour, Toronto, Toronto Sun columnist and teaches here at the Political department at the University of Western Ontario and in his August 23rd article he got a bit of criticism for that one I noticed a little bit afterwards and um, a couple of writers to the free press one uh, writes Mansur Leishman ill-informed about war another one asks who's right about Georgia who seems to think that some of the things you said were in conflict with what Gwyn Dyer said, though consistent with Rory Leishman, Prime Minister Stephen Harper, and most of the Western press. So who's right and how can we find out, he asks. Uh, you must have seen that letter. No, not all of them. Oh, not all of them? No. Okay, well, here, 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 see they're talking about okay. you in the paper. Mm -hmm. And um, I was just wondering, what's your take on, on that whole situation? I remember reading both, and you, were, you and Rory were a little more on the philosophic end, and... No, I mean, I mean I, I, again, it comes back to the original question with which you began, mm -hmm. or observation about freedom and, and open society, closed society, you know. Uh, here, is, here is a small country, uh, Georgia, and it was basically overrun by Russian tanks on the argument that the Russian tanks came down to defend uh, uh, an uh, ethnic group, the Ossetians, uh, the mm. and, and which who were divided between North Ossetians and South Ossetians. The North Ossetians are in the Russian side of Georgia, and the South Ossetians are on in the Georgian side. And, and so Georgia is split. In well, terms there are of its own. Uh, there are 
three at least three uh, three clearly defined ethnic groups there may be more but there are three that are clearly defined that the georgians that the south ossetians and we're talking about it within the boundary of right. the georgian state right. and there are the abkhazian uh which is further to the west uh, uh, so uh, Abkhazians and, and Georgians have had a, a, a war that went on in the early 1990s, soon after the collapse of the Soviet Union. Uh, the Russians came and supported the Abkhazian and tried to get, get the Abkhazian to secede from Georgia. Now that war was sort of ended uh, with the Georgians being able to uh, maintain and control Abkhazia with the support of the European Union's recognition of it. The same thing has now happened again with South Ossetia. The, 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 the Russians uh, have taken the claim that they are supporting South Ossetians who are being bullied and, and beaten to, to, up to by the Georgians. To use a weird analogy, would that be a little bit like a foreign country coming into Canada and defending Ab Quebec from the rest of us or something uh, like absolutely. that? Absolutely. So may, there, are, there are internal differences. There mm -hmm. are internal differences in many parts of the world, in many countries. There's the, there's the Basque in Spain. There are the Corsicans in France and, and so on, and you might find. But, but, the, but the Russians, the, the issue is the Russian invaded Georgia. Now, one cannot have all the space to write in a column, but there's a history behind it. Russia, people forget, was a land empire. It was a mighty big land empire that took over many other nationalities. And when the Soviet Union became the successor state of Tsarist Russia, Soviet Union only talked about that nations could you know, secede, mm -hmm. but actually Soviet Union was simply a reconstruction of the Tsarist Empire. So Soviet Union was an empire. That empire collapsed in 1991, but Moscow is not completely, you know, uh, uh, unlike Britain and France that left their colonies, uh, satisfied that, you know, it has departed. They would like to keep a control of it. Not only, uh, not only the, the countries on its immediate borders like um, Georgia, Ukraine, Lithuania, Estonia, Latvia, but also try to have an influence over former Warsaw Pact countries. Now, is that, so is that that's the struggle we are faced with. Is that really, you know, if I listen to, to judge from that BBC clip we just played, right, right. they seem to intimate that this, this was very much about oil too, m maybe more so than the Mideast situation. And well, in the case of, uh, you know, r the EU buys so much oil from Russia, and of course that's a trading yeah. relationship, and uh, yeah. Russia needs EU's money, they need Russia's oil. So you have this, uh, you know, I rem reminded of that old uh, saying by Frederick Bastiat, he says, when goods don't cross borders, armies will. Uh, wouldn't Russia's answer to its oil problems and stuff, would <laughs> haven't they learned from the rest of the world, you know, free trade? Well, um, empires are about land, about geography, about resources and, and people. And, and a little and bit so about isolation too, aren't they really in a way? In what way are well, you thinking about? When you talk about, you know, because because they like to be quote self-sufficient even though that means taking in all their Look, the only, the only, <laughs> the only way the Russian economy presently is functioning and sputtering around and growing is because of its energy wealth. Its energy wealth in Siberia mm -hmm. and the energy wealth uh, uh, of what were former Soviet 
uh, republics and now are independent countries, whether it is Kazakhstan or whether it is in, in the area of Azerbaijan, which is a, uh, on the Caspian Sea, which is a major oil-producing country, and Georgia, which was a transit route. Georgia does not have oil. It is a transit route. The, the pipeline from Azerbaijan, which was at one time a Soviet republic and now is an independent country uh, and a Muslim country, uh, has this pipeline running through Georgia, then coming down into Turkey. Ah, so, so the oil is not in Georgia itself. It there is no oil in Georgia. Uh, it is a pipeline. And so Georgia gets a revenue uh, out of, out of uh, the transit rights of the pipeline. What the Soviet Union, if they, uh, uh, to the extent that energy is a factor here, uh, sorry, no, that was a slip of tongue, Russia um, wants to keep a control of all the traffic in energy, both its own and of its uh, former colonies or former republics, keep a control of it, and that is because energy uh, is is what they have, sort of holding the throat of the European Union. The European Union is completely dependent upon energy supply that comes from the East, that comes from Russia. And so the Europeans will not make too much of a noise as what happened two years ago with the Ukrainian problem mm -hmm. when, when the Soviet Union shut down the gas supply to the European Union. Is it, do you think that's a good policy in the long term to not make noise m maybe when it should be made? <laughs> Precisely. It's yeah. not a good policy. Yeah. I mean, this is the policy of appeasement, and we, we, we should... Right. That's and again and another and broad that, subject. That, that, that sort of <coughs> brings a greater price to pay at a later date, it seems to Absolutely. me. Absolutely. So if, 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 if the European Union want to stand up and be, take, be heard, then they have to bolster the diplomacy. They have to bolster their sense of standing up instead of uh, running down George Bush. I agree. Listen, we're going to take a quick break, our last break before the end of the hour. And when we return, we'll pick up some pieces on this issue and a few others, including perhaps what's happening in India and Pakistan as well. Back after. She's like, what's the best thing that could happen, John, if they win it all? What, what do you get to say? My team's better than your team. My city's better than your city. I'm associated with a winner and you're not. Yes! <laughs> but you know, the truth of the matter is, folks, you got to have it. You got to have teams that cheer for it. It keeps people going. It's fun. It's something to do. What about the guy that has nothing? You know, he comes home from work. He's got no wife, no kids, no girlfriend. He sits there with a Domino's pizza and a six-pack and his team. And his team gets him through the night. He's not out stalking people or plotting terrorist acts. Because he's got a team to cheer for. Maybe if people in Iraq and Palestine had a team to cheer for, they wouldn't be blowing themselves up. That's the problem over there. These people have nothing to do. There's no bowling alleys. No golf courses. No casinos or cruise ships or community theater. You'd become a suicide bomber, too, if you had to live in a cave and crap in a hole every day. You know? You can't smoke, you can't drink, no sports, no cinemas, you got to pray five times a day. People are lining up to commit suicide. Where's that suicide bomber line? I'll take one for the team. These people blow themselves up just to give them something to do. The suicide teacher turnover must be outrageous. All right, I'm only going to show you this once.
what happened to peace and prosperity at the end of the Cold War? Wasn't there supposed to be no more wars? Everything was supposed to get better. What happened? Now it's the most dangerous time in history. Everybody's got nuclear weapons. India, Pakistan, North Korea. India and Pakistan have nuclear weapons. Those are dirt poor countries, folks. Where do they get nuclear weapons? Their armies don't even have matching uniforms, for Christ's sake. You know, they go to war, they gotta call each other up. Where's something tough looking? What do you think about that comment? Should India be in there? You know, India has been, I, I see here in, the, in the, one of the newspaper articles, is considered one of the great friends of the United States today, United for Freedom. You see them here in uh, the National Post, George Bush and Indian Prime Minister Maman Singh. And um, seems that uh, the United States is looking towards India. And Canada today, I also heard, was considering perhaps trading more with India than with, say, China, which you've also written about uh, an article here uh, speaking about China waiting to implode. Uh, what's your overall view on the relative value of those relationships internationally? Well, look, uh, first, wh what is India and what is West's West interest in India? Uh, and what is India's interest in the West? I mean, India is a democracy. Uh, India is the world's largest democracy. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's not a democracy simply by having one election. I mean, that, that's not the issue. India is a democracy over time, sustained, it's through since its independence in 1947. And it has shown that uh, it can function as a democracy with this immense population of of immense diversity. We call ourselves Canada a multicultural society. If you want to see multiculturalism and play, you go to India. Uh, and yes, it is a poor country. But in the last decade and a half, India has shown a remarkable uh, uh, capacity uh, to function and grow in an open economy. And it is a rising major player in Asia. There are two major players in Asia, rising power. Mm -hmm. One is China, one is India. Um, but there's a profound difference between the two countries. One is a totalitarian state, China, a communist co country, and, 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 and India is a democracy. It could be argued, too, that China has certainly improved its domestic uh, economic situation. I remember when I was a kid, y you always saw ads on TV for poverty and send your care package to China and that kind of thing. And, you, and perhaps even in India, you don't hear that anymore. Yes, I mean, uh, your point, China has improved the situation. Yes, definitely, China has tremendously improved the situation. These are remarkable t things that have been happening in the last little while, towards the end of the 20th century and now the beginning of the 21st century, that several hundred million people have moved from dire poverty to rise, rising income and moving into what we might begin to define lower middle class. And that's happening in India, that's happening in China. Uh, on the uh, on the economic side, but it is on the political side. Uh, the Chinese have been able to deliver economic goods, but politically it is a totalitarian power. And we know what totalitarian power means if we have studied the history of the 20th century. In the other hand, it is a democracy. So the question is, how do we relate to these two societies? What do we value? We have talked about ourselves that we value democracy. If we value democracy, then we should and we must take into serious consideration India's position in the world. Now, with respect to China, so I've, heard, I've heard some people argue that, yes, China is a totalitarian country, but because it's liberalizing its economic situation, that that's really incompatible with its totalitarian stance and that somehow it will eventually 
fade away and crumble. Do you feel that? I'm not sure if I got that impression from that article, although you did mention the, the countries that is China that's the real paper tiger and not the United States where that accusation came from. Mm -hmm. uh, do you think that China is going to implode? What do you mean by implode? Well, I, I, not well, literally. Well, I mean, I implosion, we saw that. Yeah. Nobody, nobody in the 1970s or 80s, when I was in the uh, uh, undergraduate student, nobody ever imagined if somebody said the Soviet Union is going to implode, they would have sent them into a psychiatric ward. Okay. You see the same uh, kind of thing uh, so possibly so happening to China. Well, I mean, you ask implode. Mm -hmm. So we s we have an evidence of implosion. Yugoslavia imploded. Yeah. Okay. So these are these are failed states, or in the case of Soviet Union, a great power that imploded. So if China implodes, that would be China would disintegrate in, in into various warlords and various other constituency. Uh, people like people of Tibet would become independent just as people in Georgia became independent and, and Kazakhstan became independent. Now, whether that would happen or not, I do not know. But the pressures are there, uh, and, and, and China is yeah, rules with an iron fist in a velvet glove. I mean, uh, 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 that's what totalitarian powers do. Um, now, there is an initi uh, uh, intrinsic contradiction that you point out. On the one side, it has b been liberalizing the economy to participate in the world, uh, 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 in, in, in a globalized world. On the other hand, it is ruthless in shutting down the same degree of liberalization when it comes to politics and society. We saw th the massacre in Tiananmen Square. Sure. Okay? We cannot forget that, what happened. It was the Chinese who turned their guns on their own children and their own generation. And the Chinese have been doing that under the communists. The most brutal killer of mankind in history, in all of history, was Mao Zedong. Somewhere between 70 and 100 million people he killed. Yes. The and, uh, and they killed Chinese people. So we, we have to be cautious. Yes, I mean, people are all looking at China. I mean, he just finished an Olympic that was very successful. But underneath all the cosmetics and all the lights and all the you know, fireworks, there is a hard reality. The hard reality is the working people in China, the peasants in China, which is the bulk of the population, are in a situation where they are controlled, where their lives are controlled. For instance, on population side, they have a one-child policy. Now, that can only be achieved with a very coercive means. Uh, now, yes, China has got a huge population, and it needs a one-China policy, a one-child policy. Mrs. Gandhi in India tried to do that, but in a democracy you cannot have a coercive policy, and Mrs. Gandhi failed in India. So if, if you're going to have a controlled population in, in India in contrast to China, the Indians will do it. They will do what is necessary out of free choice. Sure. Well, what I, well I think what the world's noticed, too, is that populations, relatively, the rate declines as yeah. the, as a country becomes more wealthy. Right. And so it seems to me that having more wealth in the country will automatically do that. Now, we've only got about three or four minutes. What a time for me to ask you this quick one, if we've even got that. But just to close off, you had a tremendous article here in the National Post. I don't know how you do that, considering you're a Sunwriter. <laughs> but... Uh, the roots of Muslim anger, you, you had a, a huge piece there. Just to briefly say some of the key points that I point in it, you say, uh, you quote someone here, you will not meet a young Muslim in the world who is not angry about something. And you say that you know Pakistani society quite intimately from studying and living among the people. And while Muslim men of all ages can be genuinely friendly to strangers, sorry, theirs is a culture of boasting and quick tempers. 
Anger in such circumstances is mostly an effect of the pent-up resentment bred of life in a society without any sort of freedom. Is, that have obviously has huge implications. Uh, in, in a minute and a half you've got, we've got left, uh, just some comments on that, being a Muslim yourself as well. Well, look, the problem is not the religion, though the religion can be made into an instrument of the problem. Uh, it can happen with Christianity, it can happen with Judaism, it can happen when religion, when, when all these sacred religion, which has a sacred text, and the text is taken literally as opposed to metaphorically and uh, allegorically, mm -hmm. then can, can be lots of problems. Um, what I was pointing out in the case of Muslim anger, that the bulk of the Arab Muslim world, from Morocco on the Atlantic coast to Indonesia uh, in the Pacific, the bulk of this world, uh, 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 the world, is part of the third world, is it part of the developing world. Rapid changes are taking place all around it and inside it. But it is also this part of the world that is a collapsed civilization. Mm -hmm. At one time, the Arab Muslim world had a very rich functioning civilization that was in tune with the Middle Ages. It was a pre-modern civilization that has collapsed. And so there is a lot of pressures both inside these societies and externally the pressure that is coming. Mm -hmm. and, and the people don't know how to respond and they often respond with great anger when these things are internalized within themselves. Now, now uh, so, so you know, a lot of people think we should be pulling out right now. We just heard Harper this morning saying we're getting out of there by 2011, although that might have just been a false threat to get NATO to act. Uh, I don't see us pulling out in a quick hurry. I, I, I remember telling Jim Chapman when we when the war started, we the West would be there for a lifetime. It, do, you, do you see it that way, or do you see an, a possibility of a pullout and, and have any of these issues resolved? Well, I mean, uh, the critical pullouts that you're talking about is Afghanistan and, and Correct, Iraq. Yeah. I don't see that happening. I mean, the uh, Canadians might pull out, but that doesn't mean NATO has pulled out, the United States has pulled out. Uh, I haven't seen any pullout from the Korean Peninsula. Mm -hmm. Nobody's talking about it. I haven't seen any pull out from, by the way, from Germany. You bring up the uh, same points I do. I, uh, I and, say and I haven't seen any pull out right. now. I mean, it's, it's over a decade since the end of the Balkan Wars, any pull out from the Balkans. Uh, whereas there is a war going on in the Middle East, in the Arab Muslim world. And I think we're going to be there. We talk about the globalized world. We talk about global village. It was the Canadian Marshall McLuhan who talked about the global mm -hmm. village. Right. What happens in a global village? If you shake, somebody else gets a fever. We're going to be there for a long time. Yeah, maybe we can get that fever down uh, at some point in the future and not have to witness another event like the I one we're so, celebrating yeah, right. or celebrating, commemorating today. I want to thank you very much, Salim Mansour, for joining us on the show today. We didn't, didn't even get to... Look at that pile of news clippings I've got on the floor there that I had hoped we could get to some of those articles. I don't know how you write so much. It's just amazing. You're prolific. And I want to thank you for both uh, for what you write and for appearing on our show today, and hopefully we'll have you back in the future. Eh? Thank you, Bob. Thank and you for And thank me. you as well, ladies and gentlemen. And I guess that's it for today. So join us again next week when we'll continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right. Stay right, do right, act right, and think right. Fade into color color into black and white under the bed clothes everything will be alright yeah you may have heard about the little uh, codependent relationship America's having with Iraq right now <laughs> yeah there was something I never understood about the whole conflict from the very beginning something that confused me
How did our oil get underneath their sand? How did our oil get underneath their sand? <laughs>